Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I'd like you to just bring to mind all the people who you've seen over the last week. It could be, depending on your context, anything from a handful of people to dozens and dozens and dozens of people that you see. And when you see someone, most of us tend to just start with a general question. How are you? How are things? How are you doing? Depending on which group someone falls into, they'll answer that in one of a number of ways. I think there are basically three different groups of people. Group one, this is by far the largest group of people. If you say to them, how are you? They will say, I'm fine, thanks, and you. Uh, And if someone's in group one, basically what they're saying is, yeah, I do quite like you. I do quite value the fact that you've uh, asked the question. I don't want to tell you how I am. I'll just get through this social interaction and we'll move on. That's group of people number one. Second group of people then, uh, this is a smaller percentage, but it's still uh, relatively large. Uh, They do want to open up a bit and they want to uh, be a little bit honest with you. Not just I'm fine, but they want to tell you something. And so they reveal one thing that they're struggling with. And and it's always the same thing for people in group two. You say to them, how are you? And they're like, I'm tired. I'm just exhausted at the moment. And, And I've I've come to realise, I don't know how long it's been going on, but certainly in recent years I've noticed more and more people, when I ask them that question, how are you? I get this answer, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm completely spent. It's like something about the way our society is set up, the, the workplaces, that we, we often can't leave work now when we leave work. We're, we're, we're meant to be connected in, emails, social media, we're, we're always on. We're always kind of uh, have different pressures, different stresses put on us. It can just be exhausting. And I think a lot of people are feeling that uh, and they'll share that when you ask how they're doing. Third group, this is a much rarer group, but they are there as well. Uh, people who go much deeper and, and they want to talk and they want to tell you about stuff that they're really struggling with. And if you had to boil it down and summarize it, they'd be saying something I'm really confused. I'm frustrated. Life is hard right now. I don't know where I'm going. I don't understand the purpose of any of it. And these ideas, particularly this exhaustion, this weariness uh, in life, and this idea that life is pointless, I don't get it. They're all over our age today in this generation. These things seem so common. But you know, these are actually way older than I think most of us realise. There's a book in the middle of our Bibles called Ecclesiastes. You might have uh, just opened your Bible at random one day. It's roughly in the centre, so you probably ended up in Ecclesiastes if you've done that. And Ecclesiastes, it powerfully describes our age. It powerfully describes everything. You know, it was written 3,000 years ago. So there's something in it that's just timeless. It's God speaking things that are true all the time. And what this book does, I think it'll do two things for us. It will help us to understand what's going on, why people feel the way they do. And it will hint, it will give us a little nudge as to what the answer might be. So I think this is going to be really powerful for our own souls, for our own um, emotional health. But also I think 
the stuff we read in Ecclesiastes is going to be dynamite when we get into these conversations with people. When, when we ask people, how are you? And they start opening up and start sharing their experience. To get this understanding of it will be so good. So what we've been doing, we've been looking at um, what's called the wisdom literature in the Bible. We spent a couple of weeks looking at the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs uh, was a collection of sayings based loosely around the teaching of Solomon with a few other wise people as well that, that he compiled throughout his life. Ecclesiastes is a book written by Solomon as an old man. So this is towards the end of his life. And he's a massive cynic. He's looking at uh, all of life and why it's frustrating and why it doesn't work. And in Proverbs, we saw that the starting point was the fear of God. He said, if you want to be wise, fear God first, and then everything else will fall into place. Ecclesiastes is basically an exploration. What happens if you don't do that? What happens if you don't get this foundational block in place? What happens if you don't fear the Lord and you try and build your life? How will that go? What will it look like? And so we're going to do like we did with Proverbs. We're going to look at chapter one this week. And then next time I'm preaching, we'll look at the last chapter of Ecclesiastes to try and understand all of the book. Would someone just turn the fan on? It looks like it's pretty hot in here. I think it would help a lot of people. Thank you. We're going to draw out four aspects of this life without the fear of God at the centre. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter one, um, or I'll have the verses on the screen as well. So this is Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea. But the sea isn't full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. And a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much knowledge, sorry, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There's a cheerful passage, isn't there? (coughs) 
We're going to look at four aspects of, of the life that doesn't have God at the centre and see why they're frustrating. And the first one is work that never stops. So we'll see this in verses 2 to 7. But the big question, really, uh, that Solomon, that this preacher wants to put to us, is in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So what he said is, look, you work hard. I know many of you work very hard in your jobs. You go to work every day, Monday to Friday, maybe weekends. You get there early. You stay late. You graft hard in your job. What did you gain from that? What's the point? All this effort you've exerted in it. So you might say, well, I'll give you an answer. I know what I gain. I gain money. I gain a big fat paycheck from my job. Okay, well, congratulations. You've got a good job. Our tithing box is over there. Um, <laughs> but we might say, well, what I gain is money. And, and that's true. We do gain financially. But then a week later, a month later, what have we done with that money? We've paid our rent or our mortgage, we've paid our grocery bills, we've paid our council tax, we've paid this, we've paid that, we've paid the other. We're back to where we started. We haven't got any money. We've got to go back and do some more toil and some more work. We've ended up in the same situation that we started in. We've done the work, we've got the money, we've paid the bills, and we've got to do work again. You might say, okay, well, that's all well and good, but I'm going to buy a big holiday. I'm not just going to spend it on my day-to-day needs. I'm going to go away to somewhere brilliant. I'm going to get my two weeks in the sun. And what a wonderful two weeks it is. But then you come back and you're right where you started. You're in the same place. You're in the same situation. You've got to do the same things all over again. You might say, well, no, no, I'm working to grow my company. And we're going to get new clients and new divisions. and uh, We're going to make this whole thing bigger so that we can do more of the same things that I've been doing from the start. We're right back to the same thing. Just more of it. Or you might think, no, no. My job really does make a difference because my job meets a need. My job serves people in such and such a way. Uh, and that's good. We, we, we want to commend that. And yet, undoubtedly, what you'll find is you're going to work the next day. And that same need, there's more of the need and there's more of your time to go fulfilling it. Now, I'm not saying these things don't have merit. They do. They're good things. But what Ecclesiastes is highlighted is ultimately, even in work, it's like we're fighting against a tide. It's like we, we're trying to stop this thing and we can't. We're just going with the flow. It says a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Are things fundamentally changing in the human experience from one generation to the next? Now, we might point out some superficial ways in which they are. But in the deepest sense, they're not. Douglas O'Donnell wrote this. <coughs> Excuse me. There is not much difference between the guy who dug ditches in Jerusalem in 942 BC and the guy who digs them today for Shanghai's sewer and sanitation department. And those who don't work with their hands, even if they're part of the new division of a company selling a new product that was newly invented, what they actually do isn't all that new. An owner is still an owner, a manufacturer is still a manufacturer, and a salesman is still a salesman. The Apple salesman who sells the latest MacBook is just like the Spanish merchant 550 years ago who sold the newest silk from the Far East. The newness is relative to the age in which we live, but when viewed against the backdrop of human history, the novelty fades. So the idea is that history is just going round and round, 
in circles. He's talking about how the sun rises and goes down, the winds blow south and north, the streams run to the sea, and then the water cycle takes the water back into the streams. So I think it's just going round and round and round, and the work that we do just feeds these, these cycles. Think Lion King, circle of life and all that jazz. He's saying that's just how it goes, and we can't break out of that, which is a slightly humbling, slightly even depressing point of view. But his conclusion that he reached in verse 2 was vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is the point in any of it, is what he's saying. So if, if work is the first one, work that never stops, he then goes on and looks at consumption that never quite satisfies in verses 8 to 10. So verse 8 says, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So it's talking about what we see, what we listen to, what we consume. So think about the things that you see with your eyes. It might be the articles that you choose to read. It might be the Netflix series that you choose to uh, binge watch all through the night. It might be the social media channels that you uh, have on your phone, constantly refreshing, looking for the new update. Think about what your ears hear. It might be the podcasts that you subscribe to. It might be the Spotify playlists that you listen to on loop. And what he's saying is these things never quite satisfy us like we'd hope them to. I mean, even think, I've just mentioned like um, Instagram, Netflix, Spotify, all of these things, they've got really clever people designing them in such a way that we will stay on those platforms, that we'll be there, that we'll never quite have had our fill and we'll always be looking for something more. They're designed to leave us half empty. That's how these things are even built. Consumption never satisfies but it's not just watching and listening in chapter two Solomon much more broadly will be describing his pursuit of pleasure so he talks about going after laughter so he's getting all the best comedians to entertain him he's talking about indulging in alcohol he's talking about getting wealthy and affluent so much so that he had 300,000 servants that's like a city of people that he could just boss about and tell them what to do he had vineyards he had parks he was a rich guy he talks about music, all the musicians who worked for him and all the parties that he could have. He talks about sex and relationships, his, uh, his many wives, his many concubines. If you're talking humanly speaking, people are going after pleasure and thinking, I'll find it here, I'll find it here, what about this? Pleasure seeking. He said, I've tried everything. I've tried it all. I've done whatever you can imagine doing, whatever you would dream of. And his verdict in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So his pursuit of pleasure, he says, that doesn't satisfy me either. He's not the only one. Uh, I found this quote by Russell Brand. And Russell Brand basically is like the 21st century Solomon. You know, he, he had a very similar experience. This is what he said. I thought it would be good to be rich and famous. It'd be good to have stuff. It would be good to have money and to be invited to the party. Well, I've been invited. I've been in. And we're having this chat in this Swish private men's club in East London. It's super cool. There are bare brick walls and everyone is double good looking. I've been inside now. I've seen the other side of the looking glass and it ain't flipping worth it. Now, just a caveat, I, I inserted flipping. I'm not saying what he said, but you get the idea. It ain't flipping worth it. It doesn't feed your soul. I still feel 
empty. He had the same experience as Solomon and many, many others. There are, <clears throat> there are dozens and dozens of quotes from famous people giving exactly the same sentiment. I thought I'd be satisfied through this, and I'm not. It's like we think we, we can feed ourselves through what we consume, and we can't. So if our work never stops, our consumption never satisfies. He then goes on in verse 11 to talk about achievement that never lasts. He says there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So he's saying, look, there's nothing really new. There's nothing that you can do that will last. Nothing will even be remembered. And I think a good way of illustrating this is to get you to think of a family tree. You know, have you ever done your family tree? I think most of us in here, if we had to do a family tree, we could probably go back a little way. So we might be able to name our parents, we might be able to name our grandparents, we might have knowledge of maybe some of our, our great-grandparents, we might know some names. We probably don't know much about them though. It's probably, a, oh, I know my great-grandparent on this, I was called this. And that's probably all we know about them. What about great-great-grandparents? How many of you know the names when you go back to that generation or back again? How many of you know the names of... Uh, your ancestors from 400 years ago, from 1,000 years ago. You see, as history goes on, those who have lived lives, uh, and as they pass away, the generation after them will be like, I'm going to remember you, I'm going to honour you in how I live. But then another generation comes, it's like, well, I know a little bit about you. And the next one, well, I know your name. And then, forgotten, forgotten, forgotten. Things don't last, there's no lasting memory. History moves on. And things are forgotten. Think about the achievements that people have done. We, we might know a lot about who's doing what now in our generation, but I wonder how many of you can tell me who won the 100 metres at the first Olympic Games. Even the first modern Olympic Games, what was it, 1896? None of us know. That was probably a big deal at the time. It's forgotten, hasn't it? History has wiped that achievement away. Who starred in the original Romeo and Juliet uh, when, when Shakespeare wrote it? We've got no idea. We don't know any actors from that era, do we? Can any of you name any prime ministers from the 17th century? What about rulers of the Aztec Empire? These are people who were big, powerful, grandiose people who everyone knew their name. Now no one has a clue who they were. I remember when I was at school, we... Um, we did a project in English where we studied uh, this poem by, by Shelley called Ozymandias. Uh, and it was about this traveller who was in the desert and he found like, these two like, stumps of legs and a little plaque. Uh, and on the plaque it said, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And then the traveller looks around and all he sees is desert and rubble. And the idea is this, this huge ruler who had a grand statue to himself, this king of kings of ancient times. What's left of him? Nothing. No one really knows who he was, what he did. It was all just ruins. And yet what many of us do is we think we can use our life to build a legacy. So we can use our life to achieve something. We give ourselves to build something. So we want our name to be remembered for what we have done. Maybe it's in our career. Maybe it's in family. Maybe it's in ministry. Whatever it might be, we have these targets. If I can accomplish this, that will make my life worthwhile. And what this preacher in Ecclesiastes says is, well, that might be fine in our generation, but just as time goes... None of that will be remembered. The things we're giving ourselves to, it will all be futile. It will all be for nothing. No, no wonder there's a weariness to life, isn't it? If all that we're giving ourselves to, it will just crumble 
away. And then finally, this preacher highlights a wisdom that never works. So he applied himself to search wisdom. I know uh, some of you, not all of you, but uh, some of you have been to university. I remember when I was at university, there was one guy. And he'd been at university like for over a decade. And, and he kept like dropping his course and uh, going and doing another one. And then um, oh, I'll do postgrad, I'll drop that, I'll do this, I'll do that. Uh, and I'm sure at your university there was someone like that as well. There, it seems to be like a, a common stereotype that some people like to live out. And Solomon was a bit like that. He's like, I'm the guy, I've done all the courses. I've understood everything. I've read all the books in the library. I mean, probably in his generation that was possible. Like, talk to all the smart professors. The fields of knowledge weren't quite as developed then. He probably could learn everything that there was to learn in his day. Yet in verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. There's a myth that if you increase your learning, that will bring you fulfillment and purpose and joy. That's not true. That's not true. Sociologists can tell you that. Just because people know more things, it doesn't mean that they are happier and more joyful and more fulfilled in life. He says in verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation. The idea is if you know a lot, you'll know a lot of bad stuff and it'll make you worry. That's kind of how it goes. We were talking at community group this week. Um, we're talking, <coughs> some people who are doctors were telling us about this um, antibiotic immunity thing where uh, all the antibiotics are going to stop working and we're all going to die. And it's like, okay, wow, you guys know things that I don't know. I can see how that's given you a big thing to worry about. I wasn't worried about that until now. Now I am. With more knowledge, there's more vexation. Um, and this is how it can go. Some of the old preachers often describe learning and wisdom as like... Um, uh, an old woolen loom that kind of makes a, a beautiful pattern. But what we see is the reverse of it. We see all the loose threads and the little bits of wool all over the place. We can't quite work out how these things we're learning fit together. And so there's lots of confusion, lots of vexation. And learning is a good thing. And yet it never quite gives us what we hope to gain from it. So here this preacher has just basically taken a shot at everything we might be living for. He's, he's told us about work that never stops, consumption that never satisfies. He's talked about achievement that never lasts. And he's talked about wisdom that never works. This is a depressing picture. And we've only done one chapter. If you read Ecclesiastes, you've got like 14 chapters of this. And he's just going on and on and laying layer upon layer upon layer of this view of the world. And the name for this worldview is nihilism. Uh, and Actually, for many people, Ecclesiastes is the Bible book that they kind of most closely resonate with because it paints such a, a vivid picture of how some of his experienced life. Everything's just depressing. Nothing works. It's all broken. Uh, none of it, there's any point to any of it. So um, let's just give up. It's an approach that can lead to despair and to hopelessness. And yet, as we started, we said that this book, it not only gives us an insight into how a lot of people experience life, but it also starts pointing us in the direction of the answer. And it does. It does. There's a little verse that we saw, um, a little phrase we saw in verse 3 that comes at many other places in Ecclesiastes. Verse 3 was, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And this idea of under the sun is a repeated refrain in Ecclesiastes. And it's a reference to 
to the idea that this world is all there is. If, you, if you're looking just purely as the, this earth, this world is a self-contained system, then this is how you will experience life. But the hint is that, well, if the answer is not to be found under the sun, where else might we look? Where else might be the answer? We need something to break in from above the sun. We need a heavenly breakthrough in this life of seeming futility. We need to look to the heavens. You know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are making the same fundamental point in a very, very different way. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes says, look, if you're just looking under the sun, everything is vanity. We need something from above the sun. It was amazing on the um, 24-hour prayer that we did. There was a little room set up that was like the prayer room. And there were different people praying at different stations, different kind of themes of prayer. But I walked into it. There were a whole bunch of people praying. There had been people praying for hours before. And as I walked in, I can't quite explain it, but I felt something in the atmosphere. It just felt different. It felt tangibly like, wow, I, I sense that God is present in this place. And everything changed. My, my perspective, the things that were running through my head, it's like, wow, God is here and everything is different. And Ecclesiastes is pointing us in that direction. We can be going through life under the sun. And then we get this sense of God is here. There's a God from, and from the heavens, from above the sun, who can break in. And all this, um, and this meaninglessness, all this wearisomeness to life, we can have it in a different perspective. My favourite analogy that I used in the Proverbs service, I want to come back to, is the idea of planets in a solar system. So planets fit in a solar system because there's a star at the centre. There's something big, there's something significant, there's something weighty around which they can orbit. They can find their place in relation to something grand and glorious. That's how planets work. And all of these things that we've been talking about, things like work, things like consumption, things like achievement, things like wisdom, they make sense when they find their orbit around the fear of the Lord. When God is at the centre, when you start in the right place, everything else has its place. I was reading about the idea of a rogue planet, which is a thing in, um, in astronomy where basically a planet is no longer in the orbit of, uh, of a sun or a star, and it's just kind of meandering through space. And these things, that I was reading about them thinking, these things are pointless. They're not doing anything. They're not going anywhere. You can't live on one of them. They don't emit light. They're just rocks kind of hurtling like that. But without the fear of the Lord at the center, without this star holding everything in its gravity, that's all we have. When you try and make your work the centerpiece of your life, it's just a rogue planet. It's just drifting. And that will be your, your experience of work. It'll be your experience of consumption. It'll be your experience of achievement. Trying to make achievement the be-all and end-all. No, it's just a rogue planet. Trying to make wisdom all you're living for. It's just going nowhere. These things find their place when the fear of the Lord is at the centre. And yet when you get the right starting point, everything can be so different. We talked about work that never stops. But the Bible uh, paints a picture of work, not just kind of working for our boss or not just working for, uh, for money. It's working for God. It's working to please him. And the pleasure of God in our work, the glory it gives him, is something that can be never taken away, something that can never fade. We have a reason to work. And the Bible talks about work and rest in balance. It's not like work, 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 but it talks about Sabbath. It talks about rhythms of work 
and rest. Even this idea of it's just going round and round and round in circles. That's how most cultures viewed the world. It, it was God's promises to Abraham, God's promises to Isaac, God's promises to Jacob that, that made people start to see history as linear, start to see progress as possible, start to see, oh, this is all heading somewhere as God's kingdom comes. We talked about consumption that never satisfies. And many people have observed that in, in humans, it's like there's a God-shaped hole that we're trying to fill with all these things. We're trying to fill with pleasure. We're trying to fill with media, whatever it might be. Augustine said this, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless. But then he said, until it finds its rest in you. And once we have God, we're no longer looking to all these things for something they can never fulfill. Because God is the one who fills that God-shaped hole. We talked about achievement that never lasts. And yet when you have this sense that you're living for God and his purposes and his glory, it's like it doesn't really matter. I mean, George Whitfield, about 250 years ago, he was a great revival preacher. He was one of the most powerful um, figures in the, in the last big revival to happen in Britain. George Whitfield and John Wesley were like the two figureheads. And someone once asked him, like, what do you want people to remember your life by, George? And he said, I don't. I just want to die and fade away in a grave. I want people to remember Jesus Christ. It gives you a different perspective on life. It's not about my achievements and how I'm remembered. I just want to play my part in Jesus' glory being established over the earth. What a different perspective that is. And in Revelation, it talks about Jesus holding the book of deeds and looking at all the things that we've done. Our deeds will be remembered. But it's all about his glory. C.T. Studd, he was like a, a 19th century guy. He was, he was an England cricketer who played in the first Ashes test match. He was, um, he was a rich guy. He was a smart guy. He'd been educated at Eton and Cambridge. He was, like, humanly speaking, uh, he had it all, really. His sporting achievement, his educational achievement, his wealth. He jacked it all in to go to different parts of the world as a pioneer missionary. And he said this, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. There is an achievement that will last. And that's as we spend our life for Jesus. And finally, we talked about a wisdom that never works. And yet in the New Testament, it talks about a wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. As we're filled with the Spirit of God, there is a different wisdom. A hidden wisdom. A spiritual wisdom from God. And it's like we use that image of, um, of the loom where you've got all these loose ends on the back of the portrait. And it's yet, as, you, as you know, the Holy Spirit, it's like the portrait gets flipped. And, and it's a beautiful thing that God is doing. In all the world. You get a glimpse into, okay, I didn't get it. I just saw some loose ends. But now I see, oh, God was doing something far bigger, far better, far more integrated than I ever imagined. This book of Ecclesiastes, it undermines a life under the sun. It's actually a damning critique of the futility of life when the fear of the Lord is missing as the centrepiece. But it's also an invitation to look beyond the sun, to look to the one who's over it all and to find life, to find the meaning that we were made for. So maybe uh, this evening here, you feel like you're that kind of rogue planet. You've never got in orbit around God at the centre. You're just drifting and it's meaningless. And it's pointless. This could be a moment for you to, to say, God, I, I, I want to be in orbit around you. So you, you come to him, you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. You take my sin. You forgive it all because of what you did for me on the cross. And I'm going to follow you. And you can put your life 
in orbit around him. Or maybe you've done that. Maybe you're like, no, I, I am in orbit. But it's like my solar system. Sometimes it's just a bit off kilter. It's like I'm trying to orbit around the wrong thing. Or some bits uh, are just not quite uh, flowing quite right in orbit. This could be a moment for you as well. So now my life has been a little bit out of sync. I want to bring it back in. I want God to be at the center and then everything else to be in its place. 